When Tom Bradley lost the 1969 mayor's race in Los Angeles, Big Willie Robinson lost too. He'd back Bradley over incumbent Sam Yorty. It was a quid pro quo. Willie handled some security for the upstart politician. And Bradley assured Willie that he'd deliver a racetrack for the Brotherhood of Street Racers if he won. That was all Willie wanted, a place where street racers of all stripes could come together in peace. But Yorty did not take kindly to Willie supporting his rival, especially after the Brotherhood and its illicit racing had been allowed to flourish on the mayor's watch. And then he told all the police department, no more street racing. Bust them. Willie had hit a dead end. For someone who'd grown accustomed to the spotlight, this must have cut deep. Without street racing, he couldn't really be Big Willie. And things were about to get worse. Willie's 1969 Dodge Charger Daytona was truly rare. It was one of just dozens outfitted with the high-powered Hemi motor, according to muscle car expert Joe Machado. Big Willie wanted the car he called the King Daytona to be the fastest around. So from time to time, Willie would get the Daytona's body dipped in acid, which eats away some of the metal, reducing weight. One day in 1971, he dropped off the King Daytona at an acid-dipping shop in southeastern L.A. He had no way of knowing it would be the last day he drove his prized car. This is where Machado comes in. By chance, he was leaving a DMV across the street in his own Daytona and noticed something surprising in front of the shop. This rusty shell of a Charger sitting on a dolly with wheels. This shell was dipped in an acid tank to lighten it. So Machado walked over to check out the Daytona. It was in bad shape. Then a man came out of the shop and asked him if he needed help. I go, what is the story on this? And I'm going to use the words he used, okay? I'm not going to pretty it up. He says, oh, some nigger can't pay the bill, so um, we're going to put it back in the tank. That was Willie Robinson's Daytona. For years, people in the Brotherhood thought the King Daytona met its end because Willie had it acid-dipped one too many times. That was the lore. But the real reason it was destroyed is much darker. A racist had deliberately ruined Willie's car in the acid tank. Gosh, I never would have thought of something like that. I don't know where a person gets it. And I was stunned. You're taken aback by it. And dang it, I never went back to the shop. But Willie didn't tell people how he really lost the King Daytona. Here's Fabian Arroyo. Wow, never heard that part of the story. But it's it's stuff people did back then. But yeah, that's messed up. This wasn't the first time one of Willie's cars was wiped out in a racial attack. During his college days in New Orleans, his Oldsmobile had been vandalized by white students angry about integration. Soon after, Willie left his hometown to try to escape being targeted and started over in L.A., but when it came time to pay the bill at the shop, he was all alone and at the mercy of a cruel bigot. And now the very symbol of Willie's success was corroded. It must have been devastating and maddening. By 1971, Big Willie was banned from street racing in LA and didn't even own a car. So it makes sense that he became increasingly fixated on his grand vision of a racetrack for the Brotherhood, a place of peace, a place where he could be Big Willie again, because who was he if he wasn't wearing a derby hat 
presiding over a crowd of street racers. He wanted that back. But could he pull it off? I'm Daniel Miller, staff writer at the Los Angeles Times, and this is Larger Than Life, a documentary podcast about L.A. street racer Big Willie Robinson. Out of options in L.A., Big Willie hit the road. For two years, he traveled the country with his wife, Tomiko, recruiting Brotherhood members and spreading his vision of peace through wheels to the masses. There were plenty of big money races, newspaper interviews, and powwows with politicians. Then, in 1973, Big Willie got news that changed everything. Councilman Bradley had just trounced Yorty in the L.A. mayoral election. It is my honor to present to you the mayor of all of the city of Los Angeles, I talked to Mayor Bradley, and he said, Willie, I'm the mayor now. Come home. I need the racetrack going. And uh, because I have a taste of gang violence already happening in Los Angeles. At the corner of Slauson and Crenshaw, a newly formed gang called the Crips, they did a drive-by shooting at the Crenshaw's bus stop and so you know the pressure's on me as the mayor to get this under control so you come home so we can get the track going big willie was getting a second chance this racetrack if it flourished it could be his legacy he didn't want to be at the mercy of capricious politicians or beholden to law enforcement officials who set the rules on the streets so he put all of his hopes into getting a track and keeping it Driving hard to discourage draggers from doing it in the street. The Brotherhood and their main man and founder, Big Willie Robinson III, have a dream. A permanent off-street racetrack that will be open to all. Even the land he picked out for the track he planned to call Brotherhood Raceway Park, the site's checkered history, its mix of grit and beauty, was Big Willie through and through. Located in an industrial section of the city, there were few neighbors to annoy and plenty of space for loud cars. I mean, it was literally an island. And they've staked out what they feel is prime turf for their Brotherhood Raceway Park, an abandoned Navy airstrip on Terminal Island, now being used as a driver training track for L.A. cops. Willie loved Terminal Island at first sight. You set off dynamite 24 hours on Terminal Island. You can run around the clock. I said, oh, this is beautiful. I like this. We want Terminal Island. Located just off the coast in San Pedro Bay, the island, which is part of the Port of Los Angeles, has a long history of hosting outlaws and outcasts. It houses an infamous prison that over the years held Charles Manson, Timothy Leary, and Al Capone. In more recent decades, the island has been consumed by big business. It teams with warehouses, container cranes, and 18-wheelers. So the idea that the Port of Los Angeles would turn over valuable city-owned property there to a band of street racers was pretty far-fetched. Willie, even with Bradley's support, got plenty of resistance right away. General manager of the harbor, he told me over his dead body that I would get Terminal Island. I said, I'm a Christian, and I'm not going to kill you for no racetrack. But I will go and tell Mayor Bradley what you just told me. And that's just what I did. So Mayor Bradley had to get involved. Bradley could pressure the Harbor Commission. 
That's the board that oversees management of the port. But he couldn't exactly order the commissioners to do something. So he went public with his support for the track. Soon enough, he was giving a TV interview while wearing a Brotherhood jacket. I think it's a great idea. It uh, provides not only an opportunity to uh, give these youngsters an outlet, but it helps build brotherhood. They are built upon the theme of a brotherhood through street racing. Bradley had become a reliable political ally for Willie, and he needed the mayor. In 1974, the Harbor Commission denied Big Willie's request to open a drag strip on Terminal Island. But Bradley overrode the commissioner's denial. A year later, the mayor got the track open. After countless setbacks, the Brotherhood of Street Racers finally had a home. A track where Willie was going to be in charge. One where he could institute a rule. Everyone was welcome. He wanted to give that gift to other people. One he was denied as a boy at Laplace Raceway in New Orleans, where he had to watch the action from the colored section because black people weren't allowed to compete. The Brotherhood wasted no time. The racers set up the track in two nights, laying by hand the electrical wire that was used to time the cars. They put up barriers in a snack stand, and as longtime Brotherhood member Mike Bowen told me, the next day, we had a racetrack. Here, Willie could fully deploy his run what you philosophy, welcoming all racers to his seaside spot. Fabian gets poetic about it. The place had a, an ambiance would be the best word. And you had a little bit of fog that come in. You could smell the ocean. The cars went faster there than anywhere else. There was a little chill in the air, but it wasn't cold. The atmosphere with the people around you was just like no other place. If you rolled in, you'd think this was going to be a crime story. And then all these people welcome you with open arms. Willie finally had a place where his brotherhood could drag race safely. It beat doing it in the street, where the risk of injury, or worse, loomed over the proceedings. And little has changed in that regard. Recently, an L.A. Times investigation found that at least 179 people died in L.A. County from 2000 to 2017 in accidents where street racing was suspected. But at Brotherhood Raceway, things would be safer. Now that they didn't have to worry about run-ins with the police or pedestrians, gearheads from all over could come together, with Willie's message of unity guiding them. Got to make this clear. Our main goal at that racetrack is brotherhood. Let me hear. Now, what we are trying to produce? All right. The raceway fostered a sense of place and permanence for the Brotherhood, and the group's culture developed there. For instance, nicknames. Brotherhood member Donald Galaz walked me through them. Mopar Charlie, Mouse, Titi, Manuel. You got School Teacher. You got Fast Ass Tyrone, Root Beer, Time Cop. You got Rice Rocket Rick, Moldy Marvin. You got Gigolo, another one, but I'm thinking of somebody else. Behind some of the nicknames are the stories of hard men and women who found peace at the track. Glenn Drevere's nickname comes from the time he intervened when Big Willie and another man looked like they might come to blows over a race gone bad. Drevere pulled out a 410 shotgun, ready to defend Willie. But Willie begged Drevere not to get nervous, and he put his weapon down. From then on, Drevere was known as Nervous Glenn. With the Brotherhood, there was this strange alchemy of bravery, recklessness, and speed that proved surprisingly successful. And on Terminal Island, the group found its home. People who were fresh out of jail and off-duty cops, you never knew who you might see there. Everyone came to Brotherhood Raceway, including some A-list friends of Willie's, like LA Times publisher Otis Chandler. Brotherhood member Harlan Brown remembers seeing him there, 
you know, he'd be up in the tower a lot of times with Willie, and they'd be announcing, or, you know, a couple times he'd be walking around the starting line and all that. But... So was Steve McQueen, who Willie said he knew from the nightclub Mavericks flat. Brotherhood member Eddie Meeks said he saw the star race there. I showed up real early in the morning. He was there, and I think it was a boxer that he was racing. Because I was up in the tower with Big Willie. He's like, hey, come see with me. Oh, my gosh, this is insane. <laughs> what could draw all sorts of people? Incredible spectacle. And one legendary race seems to best capture that anything-can-happen vibe that gave Brotherhood Raceway such a mystique. It was called Thunder Island. It was a dangerous display that featured jet cars. A jet car is basically an engine on wheels, and you just hang on. The driver barely can steer it. It's propelled, not driven. So propelled meaning that it's forced air pushing it. So you have to literally run out of fuel to be able to stop it. You're literally an airplane with no wings, and and you can go very far and and crash. (laughs) And if that isn't enough... A jet car produces a flaming exhaust as it accelerates. Like a blowtorch on steroids, and it'll go the length of a bus. And during the Thunder Island race, flames from the jet cars ignited the track's tower, where Willie announced the races over the PA system. Still, that didn't stop the competition. After the fire was put out, the drivers got right back to racing. You had to have some balls to even go there to watch a race. Thrill-seekers, stars, and surprisingly even families were regulars. Little kids got free entry and hot dogs. And they could also participate. Fabian relishes telling the story of his daughter making a pass down the track. She was four years old, and even she could run what she brung. She said she had her little electric power wheels, which was an electric truck. So we went home and got it the next day, and they shut the whole track down and let her race. The thing went one mile an hour, so... She made her pass, got out. We even did a post-race interview with her, and Tamika was cheering her on, and they were saying, girl power and all this. It was great. Brotherhood Raceway coursed with energy, but that wasn't enough for Big Willie. He was determined to prove his vision of peace. He wanted anyone to feel welcome at his track, even members of opposing street gangs. The Crips were founded in L.A. in 1969, the Bloods three years later. Long before the groups were romanticized by gangster rap, films, and the media, they were wreaking havoc in places like Compton and Watts. Take, for example, the drive-by shooting that Bradley told Willie about over the phone. According to Willie, the person killed by the Crips at the Crenshaw bus stop was actually an infant caught in the gunfire. They hit and killed a little baby. A little baby was hit and killed. Willie could have barred street gangs from Brotherhood Raceway. But instead, he invited gangsters to his turf and asked them to set aside their beefs once there. I want you guys to come in peace. We're not going to check nobody for guns. We're not going to check no cars. You guys going to come in honor, man. Trying to unite members of different gangs was dangerous. But Willie had earned their respect. A lot of these people came to him. They talked to him. When there was problems, he was the mediator. So he was a neutral, neutral zone. Willie showed these men that he trusted them by giving them a job. Gangs handled security at the track. It was a task that united them in opposition to the troublemakers who threatened to ruin a fun night at the raceway. And that brought them together. Ahead of the Bloods and the Crips and the Mexican Mafia, we had our own army. 
the gangsters who work security had a surprisingly light touch. But if there's a squabble, somebody's drunk or something, we'd say, we don't put nobody out and we will sober you up. We'll make you drink coffee and stuff until you sober up. If people wanted to fight, they didn't take it outside. They took it to the track, and Big Willie would referee. Three-minute rounds, three rounds only, and, you know, and then people could place their bets on the, who, the, the fighters, and uh, that embarrassed them. Willie made a scene over any potential fight, and once the would-be combatants realized they risked humiliation, they usually bowed out before a punch was thrown. And brawls weren't the only thing that Willie was able to keep in check. Professional drag racer Scott Lucky Hudson remembers the time someone stole a car's tires, stashed them in a Chevy Suburban, and disappeared into the crowd. And when Big Willie found out about it, they said, Willie, are we going to call the police? He says, no, I'm the police here. And he went over and made sure that people stood around that Suburban. The message was clear, and whoever took the tires vanished. They never even came back to claim their car because they knew Big Willie was not going to allow any crime. Willie constantly bragged about how the track lowered crime. I tried to speak to the LAPD for this story, but the department declined to comment. Instead, I talked to everyone from beat cops to high-ranking LAPD officials and ex-LA City Council members. And I asked them, could Brotherhood Raceway really have reduced crime? Yes, several said, explaining that crime related to street racing went down, and some gang-related offenses went down too. Much of their perspective was anecdotal, but many of them were cops who lived it, and some had led the LAPD. Here's former Chief of Police Bernard Parks, who also served as the city councilman. He did a lot to get kids off the streets. Uh, you know, when any, anytime you're dealing with prevention, you can't count how many lives you saved, uh, how much damage was prevented. And Steve Soberoff, the current president of the Los Angeles Police Commission. That guy was a crime stopper. The reduction in drag racing accidents and injuries during the time he was open here was always a significant number. No police would always tell me that. Former L.A. County Sheriff's Deputy Mel Jones agreed, and he would know he raced at the track. And they were really announcing me, yeah, this guy's really a deputy sheriff, and look at him out here racing with the Brotherhood. At Brotherhood Raceway, Jones could actually hang out with members of the South L.A. community he policed. Once, he met four African-American teenagers who at first couldn't believe he had such a fast Corvette Stingray. Is this really your car? Yeah, it really is my car. <laughs> and you're a racer. Yeah, I'm a racer. And you're, and you're really a cop. I said, well, come over here. I'm not going to bite you. Jones asked if the kids wanted to be his pit crew. After that, they helped him every weekend. After the Watts riots and the ugliness of the 1960s, it was a comfort to have the track open. I heard this from Brotherhood members, too. Kenny Russell, who races motorcycles, said Brotherhood Raceway changed his life. And I was gangbanging, I was doing all kinds of shit. But then, you know. Do you feel like it kept you out of trouble, too? Yeah, it did. Yeah? Yeah, we yeah. Once I got my hand on the motorcycle and started going out there, man, and hey, man, it was all good. This was Big Willie's vision at work. And it wasn't the only way Brotherhood Raceway had a positive effect. Like so many others, Fabian could be taken out of his comfort zone at the track. Because anybody could show up there, including a transgender woman. This was decades ago. The world was a different, more intolerant place. And her presence could have been an issue. 
I myself at that time was homophobic. Uh, not no more, but then I was, um, and got along with her fine. She was into cars and got over it, which I don't think I would have done anywhere else. At the track, Fabian was able to let go of his prejudice. Connecting people and using their common passion of racing to break down barriers was the essence of Willie's mission. Big Willie died seven years ago at the age of 69. He's remembered and idolized by some because of his work at Brotherhood Raceway. People keep Willie's memory alive because he facilitated the spectacle, but mostly because of the unity, the brotherhood. He knew cars were a means to an end. And so as Brotherhood Raceway grew more popular, Willie's outlook started to change. By the mid-1970s, Willie owned a beast of a ride he called the Police Daytona. It was painted to look like a cop car, and it was extremely fast. But much to the annoyance of Bowen, the Brotherhood member, Willie hadn't been racing it. Hanging out at the track one night, Bowen asked Willie if he wanted to check out a high-dollar race that was about to start. It's tough to understand Bowen, but it's important you hear what Willie told him. He's not going to tell you the truth. I don't really care that much about drag racing anymore. I care about brotherhood. I don't really care that much about drag racing anymore. I care about brotherhood. Willie's new focus meant that more than ever, he needed to keep Brotherhood Raceway open, where the impossible happened all the time. And Willie went to great lengths to try to ensure the racetrack's success. Brotherhood members told me that he refinanced his house to come up with the money to pay for the repaving of the drag strip. Willie and Tomiko never had children. He was keenly aware that Brotherhood Raceway would be his legacy. But he struggled to keep the track open. By the Brotherhood's count, the raceway opened and closed 11 times, and each go-around was like a standalone war. Willie was constantly at odds with the Harbor Department, whose staff always seemed to be recommending that the Harbor Commission deny Willie's requests for permits. He complained about the situation to a local news station in 1977. Our main uh, objective out here is to uh, bring the kids out here, keep them out here on the weekends. But it seems as though the general manager of the harbor don't quite go along with that program. The track was critical to Willie's mission, but the way he managed it had consequences. For years, Willie was only able to make short-term deals with the commission. Meanwhile, the harbor department was pursuing long-term plans for the property that could one day send the Brotherhood packing. More than 1,000 pages of public records give a sense of the conflict. Both sides let the ill will calcify. Their dream has run right into some rough road. Red tape, red tape, red tape. Willie never played the game. He would vilify the Harbor Department to the media and go above the commissioner's heads, appealing directly to Bradley. And with the mayor on his side... Willie didn't seem to make attempts to speak their language. This is a guy who barged into Otis Chandler's memorial service in military garb. He didn't learn to smooth out his rough edges and forge other connections. But it's possible that employees of the Harbor Department were dead set against Big Willie because of prejudice. They cited annoyances like traffic and noise. But perhaps this was really about thwarting a black man who led a scruffy group of racers, many of them minorities from South L.A., one meeting with Harbor Department officials in the late 1970s was particularly telling. USC professor Geraldine Natz, who was then working for the port, told me about it. Big Willie was finalizing a deal to be able to use the track every weekend. But Natz's boss couldn't let the moment pass without taking a dig at the street racer. 
said, did you notice that? I said, what? Did you notice he never looked at the paper? He only looked at you while you were talking. And, and I said, no, I didn't notice that. He said, I don't think Willie can read. Remember, Willie had attended some college where he studied to become a doctor. He obviously could read. Later, Willie alleged there was a racist element within the Harbor Department. He told the Times in 1981 that he knew when he was being called the N-word behind closed doors. I asked Robert Farrell, a former LA City Councilman and a major advocate for Big Willie, if he thought the Harbor Department's denials were rooted in racism. At first, he was sarcastic. Oh, no. Would I, a former city councilman, say that that's a reality? No, we don't have that. But Farrell, who is Black, eventually acknowledged that harbor officials might have wanted to close Willie's racetrack because of who he was and what he represented. But Willie had powerful backers, so the track stayed open. It was a political act. We had the capacity to do it, and we did it. And I'm very proud to have been part of this with Willie Robertson. Farrell brought something else to my attention. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, Black politicians like Bradley and himself were finally gaining real power in L.A. And these men, who had deep ties to their own community, also had the vision to see the value in the work Big Willie was doing. We had exceptional leadership in Willie Robinson and his colleagues. They were not just L.A. street races. They became something more than that. The battles between Willie and the Harbor Department were endless. For what it's worth, I tried unsuccessfully to reach several Harbor Commissioners who tussled with Willie. In any case, the Harbor Department made it tough for Willie, and he returned the favor. Creatively. Here's Brotherhood member Harlan Brown again. He knew what he was doing. It's like when he challenged the uh, Harbor Commissioner to a boxing match. They had gone round and round before talking-wise, and, you know, Willie challenged him to a, you know, a fight. He knew it wasn't going to happen. But he was just trying to prove a point that we're out here and we're not going to go away. Even if he wasn't a politician, Willie had mastered the art of political theater. His followers weren't above bombarding phone lines at the Harbor Department. And when things got really dicey at the port, Willie brought his protests to City Hall, supposedly with Bradley's blessing. Well, Mayor Bradley always told me, he said, now, Willie, when you come down and demonstrate around City Hall, then I got to get involved. And once, the Brotherhood performed a mock funeral there to get its message across. Nats, who later became executive director of the port, remembers it well. They carried a coffin to represent the young lives that had been lost in street drag racing. It got the point across, even if it was insensitive, and maybe a little ghoulish. Among Brotherhood members, the most famous of Big Willie's protests was one from 1978. Willie led a group of racers as they used cars and bikes to block off Main Street near City Hall. Brotherhood member Rodney Johnson was there that day. He remembers Willie telling the assembled masses that if the powers that be didn't reopen his track, he'd drag race right in front of City Hall. The media, everybody was like, wow, you know, we don't think they're really going to do it. To prove how serious he was, Willie had a Brotherhood member unleash a secret weapon, a funny car. That's a type of professional drag racing vehicle that goes more than 300 miles per hour and is extremely loud. And the guy cracked the throttle and it felt like an earthquake. And I think he even busted a few windows at, at City Hall. This was a version of the message Big Willie had been delivering for years. He would not be denied. Mariority could ban Big Willie from racing on city streets. 
a racist shop worker could acid dip the King Daytona into oblivion. And the Harbor Commission could try to block Willie's efforts to keep Brotherhood Raceway open. But he would always fight back. Willie seemed to thrive when he was counterpunching. He didn't know success any other way. And he usually won. The next week, the track was opened up again. Willie was like those jet cars from the Thunder Island race. He made a lot of noise. He was effective. And it was spectacular. But the thing about those jet cars is, they can't change course. And they can't slow down. For now, it was working. And that's all that seemed to matter to Willie. His success may be best illustrated by the time Darth Vader and other Star Wars stars showed up at Brotherhood Raceway. We'll get into that and Big Willie's other surprising ties to Hollywood next time on Larger Than Life. Larger Than Life is reported and written by me, your host, Daniel Miller, for the Los Angeles Times. Our producer is Grant Irving. The editor is Catherine St. Louis. Kimmy Yoshino is our story supervisor. The executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Additional production by Karin Navatia. Sound design and mixing by Daniel Turek. Music by Nolan Schneider and Grant Irving. The sound engineer is Mike Heflin. Research by Scott Wilson. Fact-checking by Laura Bullard. And copy editing by Rubena Azhar. Larger Than Life was recorded at Los Angeles Times Studios in El Segundo, California. The archival audio in this episode is courtesy of KABC-TV, and the Tom Bradley election audio is from the documentary Bridging the Divide, Tom Bradley and the Politics of Race. For more on Big Willie Robinson, including videos, photo galleries, and essays, visit latimes.com slash larger-than-life. Join our Facebook group. You can find us at Larger Than Life Podcast to discuss the story. And I'm on Twitter at Daniel N. Miller. You can also learn more about the story by subscribing to our Play Next newsletter, Go to latimes.com slash playnext. Larger Than Life is available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. It really helps spread the word. Larger Than Life is a production of LA Times Studios with support from Neon Hum Media. Yeah.